First baseman, number 22, Randall Sinkers. How about that? What a moment this week at Wrigley Field. Jeremy, you and I, I think, have dreamed about this it. moment. Here in Randall J. Sanders batting for the Chicago Cubs. Randall, what a cool thing there. Uh, the voice of Wrigley Field, Andrew Bellison, introducing you as a batter for the Cubs. How'd that come to be? Uh, you know, the Cubs put it out uh, on Twitter real quick earlier this week. Reply with your, your name, your number, and your preferred position. And you might get to hear it called over the Wrigley Field PA. And I have to say, my name sounds good. Uh, it does. Wrigley Field, PA. I have a question, and I think it's one our listeners would be interested in. I know Ronan's inter- interested in it. Why first base? What was in, behind that position? You know, I felt like I had to get that out there quickly in order to stand a chance to, to be picked out of the pool. And I went with the position I felt like was most realistic for me. And in hindsight, um, I'd say most realistic for me is probably no position. Um, and if I had had like another second or two to think about it, I probably would have gone a little more interesting, maybe third base, maybe center field, maybe right field. But uh, either way, it still sounded good. Got to make those picks. You know, Javi's going to be throwing them pretty hard. Some scoops. That's right. I'll, I'll wear a catcher's, catcher's gear while standing at first base just in case. You know, our astute listeners will also know that every time I introduce you or name you, um, and this is not just on the podcast, this is when I'm walking down the street talking to strangers in Denver, I always include the J, Randall J. Sanders. Curious why you omitted the J for your walk-up introduction. Well, you know, being realistic again, as I so often am, if they were uh, introducing me at Wrigley, I don't think they'd put the, uh, the middle initial in there. You know, he's not Anthony V. Rizzo. He's not Chris L. Bryant. Uh, so, you know, it, it's important to stay realistic when you're submitting your name to be announced over the Wrigley Field PA. I would like you, Randall, to be a future Cub. And given what Tom Ricketts is paying, you know, maybe you fit into the mix for the roster this season. Um, I want you to be the type of player who demands the middle initial, like the Randall J. Sanders. Randall, what would your walk-up song be to accompany your intro there? You know, I, I don't know that I've ever thought about my, what my walk-up song would be. I do know that if I were a pitcher, I would come into the first 60 seconds of the Ghostbusters theme, which I think has a, a good build-up to it, has a good hook, really get the crowd involved. That I'm pretty sure of. I haven't thought about what my walk-up music would be as a batter. I, I, I don't believe you on that, Randall. There's a song, certainly, that I'm thinking about that is iconic for you. We'll come back to that in a moment. Jeremy, what would your walk-up song be? I don't know. I don't know. That's a good question. Uh, obviously, coming off the bat, you know me, I'd probably think of some Pearl Jam. You know, Jason Hamill coming out there with a live was always fun. So I don't know. I'd just pull, you know, you know, a corduroy would be nice. Maybe a go with a deep cut, you know, something like, a, I don't know, State and Love and Trust is not really a deep cut, but like that. So, uh, you know, some PJ, get out there. Get totally. Going. I think we've all thought about it. My only caveat, because as you guys remember, and you heard me rant about this in high school, um, uh, in the college years when we were going to games, I'm not a big fan of walk-up songs. So if I were a player, my demand would be on the Cubs that whatever it is, it's played on the organ. So yeah. if I pick a song by the band or something like that, awesome, but I just want to play it on the Lowry organ instead of 10 seconds of a pop song blasting. I think that's a little bit obnoxious personally when I'm at the ballpark. You'd be so like, that's Jeter. how I put it. I'd be like Jeter, exactly. When he forced the, the Yankees after the old time, uh, well, Bob Shepard is his name, I think. Um, you can correct me, but the PA announcer, he uh, passed away and he demanded that the PA announcer continuing 
Same guy. He needs a recording and bring him up to bat, not the new guy. I love it. It's a great tradition, especially um, in a ballpark like that. And you're right, Bob Shepard, uh, who I'm seeing here just his bio, he lived to 100 years old in the longtime voice of Yankee Stadium. So one of those uh, big time names, but good stuff there, Randall. It was very cool to hear it. I'll tell you what, that thing popped on social media. A lot of people were excited to hear it. I probably sent a text of that to at least a dozen people and all of the reactions were positive. So cool stuff, Randall. I also just wish something- we had the roar of the crowd there. Right. I wish that's what we had. And the song, Randall, I have to say it, I thought we'd get a little Three Doors Down as your walk-up song. There was a time, at least in your life, where, without a doubt... I like the underground Superman, theme. Or the underground theme, exactly, from, from Mario. Uh, I'll uh, tell you what, we'll put both of those on the short list, okay? One thing you didn't consider, Randall, in making that public on social media, uh, as you guys know, I'm a big fan of out-of-the-park baseball, big OOTP guy, also a big fan of MLB The Show. And I'm a couple systems applying. I'm still playing MLB The Show 13. But I like to make Randall in the games for Road to the Show. I like to have this up-and-coming prospect. Now I've got the official public address announcer announcing Randall. So when he's batting in the game, it's going to be that real-life immersive experience. So we're going to have some good fun with that. But welcome into edition number seven of Behind the Yellow Line. This is a Chicago Cubs podcast and baseball is back. The Cubs have reported to Mesa, Arizona. Pitchers and catchers have been in town for a couple of days. The position players are there now. So a lot of exciting things to talk about here. Um, Over today's show, we are going to talk a little bit about a Cubs Productions doc that came out this week. An interesting look back on the 2020 season. So we'll take a look at some of those exciting moments and some things I was not aware about. Um, We are going to also fill you in on some transactions the Cubs have had here over the last week or so. Uh, They've addressed the bullpen, bringing back a familiar, hard-throwing right-hander. Someone who we thought would be in the mix in the outfield is now off the team, and a familiar face is back. We'll tell you about Cameron Maben and how that's going to fill out. And then, um, as Randall warned us, Jeremy, there would be popping and cracking at the start of spring training, and the popping and cracking has begun Already a couple of Cubs on the injured list, Um, some arms that we thought would be breaking camp in that big league rotation, or I'm sorry, in the big league bullpen, um, instead probably going to open the season on the injured list. So we'll take a look at that. And Randall's got some spring training roster number updates for us, as well as a tribute here to Ron Santo at the end of the show. Um, Ronnie would have been 81 this week and a big time favorite here on the podcast. So we'll look back on Ron. We're trying something a little bit different this week. We are bringing in a guest for the show, and we're honored to bring in a really big Cubs fan, a big reason why I am a Cubs fan. Uh, That is one of my older brothers. So, Connor Patrick O'Shea, we've got you from just outside Milwaukee. How are you doing tonight? Doing good. Hey, guys. Thanks for, for having me on. We're excited to have you here. Um, a lot to talk about. And, Connor, you're going to be part of trivia today. Oh boy! I put a little bit of work in last night, pulling some interesting trivia from the last 20 years, and I'm excited. There's going to be some names, folks, coming out over the next 10 minutes or so on this pod, and uh, we're going to have some fun with it. So let's jump straight into it here. Um, Connor, before we get into trivia, I wanted to ask you this. You know, you and I have been going to Cubs games since the 90s. We grew up in a house where dad made sure we were Cubs fans. It was always on TV. We were at the ballpark a couple times a year. What's your first distinct memory as a Cubs fan? Is there a game, a season, a moment that you're like, that's kind of my earliest memory of being a Cubs fan? 
That's a good question. You, you know what I think of? I think of um, anyone familiar with the 89 Cubs. After that season, there was a, a VHS tape called The Boys of Zimmer that was like a 60-minute recap of that 1989 playoff season. And I, I remember we had that and probably every day of that offseason coming home from school and watching that same tape, you know, with Jerome Walton's hitting streak and Dwight Smith's rookie of the year run uh, and that 89 season. So I don't really remember much before that. I remember our, our dad waking me up in 89 to watch the clincher in Montreal, cool. but that's probably the first, the first Cubs memory. That's cool. I was just thinking about that. And it's interesting that a playoff team sort of is at that pivotal moment in your fandom because Jeremy and I would certainly point to 98 as a season that really just sucked us in Sammy going crazy. I mean, we've got memories before that, but it was like, that was the first really good team that we got. And Randall, um, 2003 certainly was a year for you that just really cemented your fandom. You had a chance to see a pretty good Cubs team for, you know, as you were getting into your fandom. 2003, very, very formative in my fandom. Uh, I've been a Cubs fan since birth. 2003 was the first time I really started kind of delving into the game and filling in the gaps of what I knew and didn't know. Uh, so, yeah, 2003, very, very formative uh, in my fandom. Connor, one more question for you before we go into trivia here. And then before we let you go today, we want to talk a little bit about this year's team, some of your thoughts here at the beginning of spring training. Um, You've been at some iconic Cubs moments over the years. Um, what do you think is the most iconic Cubs moment? It could be a team win, a playoff clincher, um, a single moment, like the Kosuke big home run off Eric Anya on opening day. What do you think is the most iconic Cubs moment you've witnessed in person in your years going to Wrigley or even on the road? In person. That was the twist there. I thought this was a really obvious question. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So in person, iconic Cubs moment. I I was at the Kosuke opening day uh, in 2008. That was a good one. Even though they lost that game to the Brewers, uh, but that was, that was a great game for him and a great comeback there in the ninth. Um, What else? I I don't, it's probably that. Like, I, I don't know if I was at any of the major, major moments other than that one. So I'd, I'd go with Kosuke. <laughs> well, I, I think, I think I got you here. Might, might get you in trouble at home too. I thought you'd pick a different game, Connor. The, the Alex Gonzalez. The off. Alex Gonzalez right. walk off okay. May 10th, 2003. It was a Cubs Cardinals game at Wrigley. Um, your first Cubs date with your future wife was current at wife, that yeah. ball game. I thought your current wife. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that that would be maybe the game. So uh, if Megan's listening to this, she maybe is scratching her head, but you know, Kosuke with me, that's a little bit better than a Cubs walk off with uh, your future wife. Exactly. Yeah. How, how, how can it beat that? Right. Right. So let's get into some trivia here. Connor, I tailored today's trivia questions. I'm thinking about your fandom. Um, I'm like, okay, you would have been about eight years old in 1990. So the 90s for you would be like the eight to 18 years. And in terms of baseball fandom, like what else is bigger when you're eight, nine, 10, 11 years old than Chicago Cubs baseball? We certainly feel that way. So a heavy lean here on 1990s Cubs and, um, as always, just sort of think out loud on your answers. We want to get some names. We want some random names to come out here. I think that's part of the fun. And let's set the stage here a little bit. So let's go back to the 1990s. We're living on the north side of the city. When you think about 90s Cubs baseball, not just on the field, but like Yum Yum Donuts, the Torco sign in right field, um, obviously Harry Carey, 
the Southwest Airlines, how far did it fly? Like all of these vivid images that you can think of of 1990. A couple of facts from the 90s as well. The Cubs produced one playoff team in the 1990s. That was the 1998 team that won the wild card. Three teams had winning seasons, two 90-loss seasons, and two strike-impacted seasons. The Cubs also had two seasons in the 90s where they played 163 games. 1998, the wild card year. 1993, they had a tie in the middle of that season uh, against Montreal and ended up playing 163 games. Last thing on this front to set the tone. One MVP, Sammy in 98, one Cy Young, Maddox in 92, and one Rookie of the Year, Kerry Wood in 98. So the 90s, really an interesting decade for the Cubs. Not really the most successful decade. You also had the own 14 start in 97, but still so many big names and faces, I think, in that decade with the Cubbies. Yeah, actually, the first thing I was going to mention was that 0-14 start there in 97. When I think of 90s Cubs baseball, I think, you know, I think about how terrible they were for basically the entire decade. I mean, you had Sosa come on and he made the Cubs fun again. Um, Before Sosa, it was Sandberg and Grace and Maddox, you know, bleeding a little bit into the 90s on the front end. You know, one magical Rick Wilkins year. Um, Mm -hmm. But other than that, I mean, it was it was garbage baseball for the most part so yeah you think about harry you think about you know budweiser commercials and true link fences and you know how far did it fly but you don't think about a lot of good baseball with no with 90s cubs rc cola and mark grace right? jeremy any any other vivid 90s memories anything vivid, with the cubs? Vivid 90s memories i i mean i i always like um uh yeah, I, I think for some reason I have like Darren when the first thing you asked it was like Darren May in center field and then later uh or Derek May, excuse me, Derek May, not Darren, Derek May, and then later Lance Johnson. But uh, you know, I, I think it like I, I don't know, I just Sammy, obviously I was watching a game in ninety seven the other day on Marquee. I think Sammy was having a monster game and they were beating up on the Padres. So that was pretty good. But you know, actually you know what I think of what I think of that? I think of uh the skipper, Jim Riggleman, those aviators. I, that sure. always stuck with me. That always kind of got me when I was watching the Cubs was Jim Riggleman with the big aviators. Something else to think about from that time. I, I look at the late 90s Wrigley as one of my favorite eras in the ballpark because it was still mostly ad-free. You didn't have the major expansion in the bleachers. You had the juniper bushes in center. It was like the last sort of era of pre-heavy advertising Wrigley Field. There were advertisements in the ballpark, but no video boards or anything like that. And the contrast of other ballparks in the 90s, think about the National League Central too, the dump in Pittsburgh, the dump in Cincinnati, the ashtray that Connor, our dad, helped build down in St. Louis. But there were these, the multi-use stadiums with the AstroTurf infields, and then you had this beautiful Wrigley Field. That dichotomy was something that really stood out, I think, in our childhood. Yeah, and you had, later in, you had a county stadium in Milwaukee. Exactly. Yeah, and um, a couple times, Connor. Cool the, beer stein, but other than that, not yeah. much. Yeah, Brant Brown, another great 90s memory. Yes, oh, goodness. Terry Wood coming on, yeah. Yeah, so so lots of interesting names. Let's keep that in mind. Um, Connor, you're a big analytics guy. You were very early uh, on the bandwagon with that. So I thought, let's start with your favorite pitching stat, and the one that really surmises the great qualities in pitching. So that is the pitcher win. So, Connor, I got a couple stats for you here. Um, and, and Jeremy Randall, feel free to chime in here as well. Who led the Chicago Cubs in wins between 1990 and 1999? Uh, three pitching stats wins, saves, 
and pitcher war. So what Cubs pitchers from 1990 through 1999 led the team in wins, who led the team in saves, and then who led the team in pitcher war? And Connor, feel free to think out loud a little bit as you work through this. All right. So wins, saves, pitcher war in the 90s. Um, so, I mean, with these stats, again, they're, they're, they're counting stats. They're, yes. they're stats that are going to accumulate over time. So you're going to want to think of players who were on the Cubs for as many years as possible in that time frame. The pitching in the 90s was rough. Um, you know, the beginning of the decade, you had Maddox. I think he was a Cub through 92 or 93. 92. So you, you, 92. So you, you, 92 or 3. Yeah, so you'd either th- three or four years of Maddox. And then on the back end, you know, Kerry Wood came up in, in 98. You had, you know, then Kevin Tapney might be somewhere on that <laughs> list. I think his best years might have carried over into like 2000, 2001. Same with Lieber, like he, he was in the early 2000s. It feels obvious to say Maddox, but I'd, I'd say Maddox for, for pitcher wins. Okay, let's just stay on wins. We'll go around the horn and then we'll work through it. Jeremy, who do you think led the Cubs so, 90s pitchers in wins? Yeah, I was actually thinking about a few pitchers when you were asking me some questions, but uh, I think I'm going to go, I feel like I'm going to go with Steve Traxel. Okay. Uh, for pitcher wins. I, I, he was there for a while. I was thinking I had some other guys in my head, like Frank Castillo or Jamie Navarro, just, you know, total whatever, <laughs> Mike Morgan, but who came back. But uh, I think I'll go with Steve Traxel. Any other names, Randall, to add to Kevin, the list there? Kevin Tappany came to mind. So I'm going to, I'm going to register him as my guest for this okay. question. Well, good stuff all around. And I'm um, collectively, you guys got there. Jeremy, you're right. Steve Traxel pacing nice. Cubs pitchers with 60 wins. Second in line was Greg Maddox with 50. And then uh, an old friend, Frank Castillo, 47 wins to round out the top three for the Cubs. Um, Let's move on to saves. And uh, Jeremy, maybe you can start us off this time. Who do you think led the Cubs in saves in the 90s? So I would would have to go with Myers, I feel like, Randy Myers. Randall, any uh, name you want to throw in there? Ah, Boy, you know – and I'm, I'm not real up on uh, relievers on the 90s Cubs. Rod Beck is probably the only closer from that era I could name. So I'm going to toss him in there, Rod Beck, my guess. Okay. Connor, any thoughts? Those were the first two names that came to mind for me as well. I, I think Jeremy's got it, though. Is it? Yes. Is it? Totally Andy right. Myers. So yeah. Randy Myers, 112 saves. Randall, amazing. Rod Beck, second for the Cubs in the 90s and saves with 58. Of course, he had the big year in 98. Who do you guys think finished third in the 90s and saves? I have no idea. I'm... <laughs> he was Patterson. a hard, hard-throwing <laughs> right-hander. Heathcliff Slocum. <laughs> Good name there. No, um, you, you guys, I think you're going to kick yourselves a little bit on this one. Terry Adams, 37 oh, Terry saves. Adams. For the I was thinking Terry times. Mulholland, but I didn't think Terry Adams. What about pitcher war? So we already mentioned that Traxel paced the team with 60 wins. Who had the most uh, highest collective pitcher war for the Cubs in the 90s? And uh, – Randall, why don't you start us off this time? Yeah, you know, I'm going to guess Maddox, just because starting pitching for the Cubs was so rough in that decade uh, without looking at it, obviously. Uh, I'm guessing just because Maddox was so good and the rest of the starting pitching was pretty rough. 
Maddox is going to be my guest for uh, cumulative lore for the for the nineties. Cool. What about you, Connor? Yeah, I, I think I think it's probably Maddox. Traxel's a good guest too. And if you know if you put up sixty wins, you've been a Cub long enough to pile up some war in the process. Um, but Maddox, you know, Maddox is Maddox. So even with fewer wins, I would guess Maddox. Jeremy, you're nodding along yeah, there. Anything I think, else? I think I'll make it unanimous. I'll, I'll guess Maddox too. And like uh, Connor said, you know, Traxel was probably, it seemed like he was more slightly ahead in wins. And I feel like Maddox probably was a better pitcher despite having fewer wins. So we probably edged him in war. Yeah. Uh, perfect all the way around. Maddox, 17.9 in terms of fan graph pitching war. Frank Castillo, second with 12.1. And then Steve Traxel comes up third with 9.9. One more bonus trivia question about pitching before we move to hitting in the 90s. The same pitcher accumulated the most strikeouts and innings pitched in the 90s for the Cubs. Who was it? Uh, Connor, start this one off. So over the course of the whole 90s, the most strikeouts and, and innings pitched. pitched. He, he, he led both categories. Same guy. Hmm. Trying to think of who else was would have led in innings pitched other than those names we talked about. How about Morgan? How, how let's go with Mike Morgan. Mix okay. it up a little bit. Jeremy Randall, any thoughts? Uh, yeah. You know, I'm not coming up with one. I'll, I'll guess Kevin Tappany again. Cause if you cool. keep guessing Kevin, Kevin Tappany, eventually you're going to be right about something. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I, uh, most innings pitched. I, I feel like Traxel got the wins. He probably had a lot of innings but I kind of don't want to guess Traxel because we've already guessed him and we were talking about him. So uh, I, I don't know. I, Frank Castillo, if we just heard he was yeah, second Frank there Castillo in second war. Everything. Frank Castillo is probably a good guess. It was, um, in fact, Steve Traxel. So Steve Traxel, I wanted yeah. to give love to him. I mean, he was an iconic name in the Cubs rotation, and the guy just churned out innings in, a, in, the, in the midst of a heavy offense, uh, obviously steroid or era baseball mm-hmm. there throughout the 90s. He was an uh, but a staple. Yeah, didn't, he was. Didn't turn them out quickly, though. No, no, no. Rain One delay? Those, what was it? Weather delay tracks? The human rain delay. Human rain delay, yeah. If, if you, Darvish, learned anything from a previous Cubs pitcher, it maybe was that because he was really slow last year. I'm not comparing you, Darvish, and Steve Traxel other than the fact that they were both very, very slow working on the mound. Um, Darvish, obviously, a little bit more talent there and a little bit more success. Traxel was an all-star, so. That's right. But that rounds out uh, some of the pitching. Turning over to hitting, I was messing around with some numbers. A, a couple of the major stats from the 90s offensively were pretty obvious. Um, Sammy Sosa paced the team in home runs. Mark Race had the most hits and doubles in the 90s. So I wanted to go a little bit further here. Who led the Cubs in stolen bases in the 1990s? And Jeremy, I want you to try it first here. Stolen bases? In the 1990s, I guess I'll go with uh, I'll, I'll go with Dunstan. Okay. Just throw something out. Connor, what do you think? Most stolen bases in the 90s for the Cubs. I mean, there there were not any great base stealers on those 90s teams. They had a you know a season with Lance Johnson, but at that point he, he probably wasn't much of a base stealer. I, I guess Sandberg. I think he was kind of a runner still when, when the decade started, I I guess Rhino. Okay. Randall, any thoughts? Sandberg was my guess also uh, both as a reasonable guess and as one of the few guys on the nineties teams who might have any speed to him. So uh, logical and plausible. 
Well, you all missed on this one. Um, Sammy Sosa, 172 oh, yeah. stolen bases. We think 30, of the power in the last half of the uh, decade there, but on the front half, those 30, 30 years, 172 for Sammy. Uh, Sandberg was second with 94. Sean Dunstan was third. Uh, this here's a name that will bring back some memories. Brian McRae, fourth at 79. McRae also had the most home runs of any Cubs center fielder in the 90s. But this one really surprised me when I was looking at the numbers. Who was fifth for the Cubs in stolen bases in the 90s? And it's a name we all know, but it just I didn't think of it as, yeah, this guy gets stolen bases. Just a free-for-all, anyone who wants to take it. Ray Sanchez. <laughs> Good guess, but not Ray Sanchez. Gary Gaetti. I'll give you all a hint here. He was on base a ton. Mark is Grace? It, is it Grace? Mark, Mark yeah. Grace. Yeah, so Mark Grace, fifth. I just, I do not think of Mark Grace as a base stealer. I think of him slapping the ball in the gap in right center and sort of casually jogging into second for another, you know, double. It seemed like he did that all the time on the field. So Mark Grace is fifth there. Um, in terms of this last question here uh, offensively, most plate appearances in the 90s for the Cubs um, were working in the top five or so. I thought the first three were obvious. Obviously, Mark Race, Sammy Sosa, Ryan Sandberg. Those were the first three names that would come to mind. Who were fourth and fifth for the Cubs in plate appearances in the 90s? And Connor, again, I'll put you on the spot first this time. So again, we're thinking players who were Cubs for a significant amount of time in the 90s. Hmm. You know, it's probably going to be a name that, that you're not expecting, like a, a Jose Hernandez type. He Maybe he's in that mix somewhere. You know, Rick Wilkins, I, I think he was a starting catcher for three or four years for the Cubs. You know, as a catcher, you don't play every day, but I don't know how many position players they had, you know, who, who played all the time. Henry Rodriguez, a personal favorite, but he was injured half the time he was here. <laughs> so I, I'll go with Jose Hernandez as, okay. as one of my guesses there. Cool. Jeremy, any thoughts? I think I'm going to go with Dunstan again. I, I mean, he was there until like 97 or something. So I feel like he probably got a lot of PAs. Sure. Randall, any other names that maybe haven't been thrown out that comes to mind or another name you want to reinforce? Another name I want to reinforce. I will, uh, I'll echo Jeremy here. I'll guess uh, Sean Dunstan. And sure enough. So Sean Dunstan was fourth in play plate appearances. Number five, one of Harry Carey's favorites, Ray Sanchez finished fifth for the Cubs in plate appearances in the 90s. Um, and then to bring it all home here, I got a bonus question. This actually ties into our closing segment this evening um, because we are going to talk about Ron Santo. And um, there was a long narrative with the Cubs that between Ron Santo in the 60s and into the early 70s and until Aramis Ramirez, the Cubs really didn't have consistent year-after-year production from one guy at third base. There were a couple of guys that had some runs in there, but there was a long stretch there where third base was kind of a black hole or a revolving door for the Cubs. With that in mind, what Cubs third baseman launched the most home runs in the 1990s. So what player who played third base for the Cubs accumulated the most home runs in the 90s? Uh, Jeremy, I'll put you on the spot first. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Steve Buschel. Okay. Interesting guess. That's a name we haven't heard yet tonight. I've thrown one out. Connor. That was the first name I thought of too. Um, he was the short star, the third baseman for a few years there. I'd, I'd go Buschel. I mean, the other name that comes to mind is Ori, but I, I don't think he played that long. So I'd lean Buschel. 
Randall, any thoughts? Uh, the only third baseman I can name for the Cubs in the 90s are Kevin Ory and Gary Gaetti. And I don't believe either of those is correct, but uh, I'll guess Kevin Ory as well. Okay, um, so a miss here from everybody. Uh, the fun thing with it, though, is it's a name you brought up a moment ago, Connor. Jose Hernandez, 69 home runs, led the Cubs in the 90s, uh, rounding out the top five. Luis Salazar, Steve Buchel, uh, Leo Gomez, Tyler Houston, and Gary Gaetti. Can you believe That's Gary gross. Gaetti finished fifth for the Cubs yeah. in home runs in the 90s? He had a, a flash in the pan there in 98, but goodness – Black hole for the Cubs at third base, I'd say. That's a, a terrible rough list. Yeah. You know what, though? Like, I think center field historically has been an even worse position for the Cubs in third base. Everyone talks about the third base gap for, between Santo and then Aramis and now, now KB. But center field, I mean, it's it's very weak historically. Yeah. Yeah. They've never – they had that brief stretch with Dexter Fowler. But other than that, you'd have to go back a really long time to find a good Cubs center fielder. One of their best center fielders was two guys, Edmonds and uh, Reed Johnson combining in 2008. And uh, that, yeah. te- that tells the story in and of itself. Yeah, we got some Corey fielder. Patterson slander going on here. <laughs> that Kenny Lofton half season was fun. Yeah, Lofton, you know, yeah. Jerome Walton had a year in 89, but yeah. like multiple year center fielder just hasn't happened. For the like in my mind, Ronan mentioned him earlier. I always think of Brian McRae as decent, but if you actually look at his stats, he had like a, like an, oh, like an on base percentage in the two hundreds. Oh <laughs> gosh. Cubs, and he's like leading off. Yeah. I think my memories of Brian McRae are more just like from the eye test. He hit a right. lot of home runs. He was fun to see in the outfield. One of those guys that like you liked rooting for, but then you go back and you look at the stats and go, God, man, that guy wasn't as good as I thought he was. I, I feel like you, Alex Gonzalez, who we mentioned earlier. Yeah. I'm like, oh, I thought he was <laughs> yeah. like, no, he cannot get on base at all. I mean, good for power, but he cannot get on base. So that, um, you know, goes through some of the decade at a whole here. Our final two trivia questions of the night are submitted by listeners of the podcast. So they're a little bit more special to us. And the first one here coming from a resident White Sox fan, Ray Blunts. And he was excited to share this one with us. Um, Connor, I also have a memory, and I'm not totally sure about this. I think you were at this game. But I'm not totally sure, and that adds a little wrinkle to it. But our buddy Ray Blunts wrote in. He really wanted to get this one in. When the Cubs and White Sox met in the first regular season game, when interleague play started in 1997, who were the two starting pitchers in that game? Who started for the Cubs? Who started for the White Sox? It was June 16, 1997 at Comiskey Park on the south side. Go ahead, Connor. I might be off here. I have a feeling the Cubs starting pitcher was Kevin Foster in in that game. Um, For the White Sox, John Garland was, okay. was John Garland a White Sox at that point. That might have been too soon for John Garland. Yeah, he was still with were the you, Cubs. 97. Yeah, right. Do yeah, you, yeah, he was in that, that '98 game? trade. Mm-hmm. I I think I was was at the game. The Sox won like on a walk off. I'm thinking of the right game. The Sox won on a walk off at the Cell or or Sox Park, whatever it was called at the time. No, so, so you're conflating a game in 2001 that we went to where the White Sox did have a walk-off home run. Um, that was a, one of the worst nights of yeah. my life as a 14-year-old. My memory, Connor, of this is um, you and Dad had either won tickets or he had gotten tickets through some lottery system because there were only two. 
And, you know, Sean and I, our other brother, were probably like, what the hell, man? Why, why are we getting boxed out of this? But there would have been a reason why only you two were going to the game. And I just have a memory of you there. I have more of a memory of you at that game than you do. So maybe that's, that's true of most it. games I've gone to, Ronan. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought so, it, was, it was like a day game, and I thought the White Sox won it pretty handily. Okay. So, thought, uh, but I don't remember. I thought okay. it was like 8-3 to three or something, but it could be wrong. Any thoughts on who started for the Cubs and Sox that day, Jeremy? Just because he was on both teams in the mid-90s, I'm going to guess Jamie Navarro was one of the pitchers. I feel like I got a good chance on either team. <laughs> so um, good stuff there. You guys collectively put it together. Kevin Foster gets the win, delivering a quality start over six innings oh, as the right. Cubs defeat Jamie Navarro and the Chicago White Sox 8-3 to three at Comiskey Park. I got the score right. I got That's the wrong right. team winning, though. <laughs> uh, interestingly... All three pitchers for the White Sox that night also pitched for the Cubs at various points in their career. I'll give you a hint on this. One was a Cub before being a White Sox. The other was a Cub after being a White Sox. We already know Jamie Navarro was in the mix. Who were those other two pitchers that played for the Sox in that game that would either become future Cubs or were former Cubs? Jeremy, you're nodding. Let's see if you can take a stab oh, at this first. nodding at the question. I don't know if I know the I'm is one of them Bob Howery or was he he was part of the white flag trade in 97 so he probably wasn't up yet with the White Sox I guess um, Matt Karchner for the relievers ooh, since the Cubs acquired him the next yeah. year from the Sox exactly right Karchner's one of them the other one was a Cub earlier in his career um also known for having glasses Chuck McElroy Chuck McElroy <laughs> Was the other pitcher? Glasses. So, classic name. I was yeah. I was thinking Jason Beret, but it was the opposite. Then Chuck McElroy. <laughs> uh, so really good question there, Ray. We appreciate it. And Ray, you know the countdown clock is on. You have committed to coming on the podcast before opening day, and we're turning the page here into March here on Monday. So four weeks or so, and we're going to get Ray on the show. Calendar's Last ticking. Question. Calendar's ticking, Ray. That's right. He's on the clock. He's on the clock, and we'll we'll be happy to have him on. Um, last question came from. A human being who is the polar opposite of Ray Blunt's, uh, and that's our dad, Connor, John O'Shea, Cub fan oh, wow. since the 1940s. Uh, he had a question. He submitted it to me this week, and um, I'm, I really want to know if you get this one right, Connor. It's a bit of a long shot. So from, from Pops here, who was the everyday third baseman for the 1952 Chicago Cubs? <laughs> <laughs> 1952 Cubs. Oh man, I I couldn't tell you. I, I uh, know I know it's a lot, Jeremy. Any anything you from that? Guess there? there. It's a little before my day. I haven't I haven't read up on the '52 Cubs that much. <laughs> well, um, Hank Sauer won the MVP. So I, I, I know I that, anything. but I know he wasn't playing third. And I'm thinking no. <laughs> of like Ralph Kiner, but he wasn't at third either. Uh, I don't know. He shares a name with a co-host. First name of the co-host on this podcast. It is, of course, Handsome Ransom, Randy Jackson, who was a staple of the Cubs uh, the first half of the 1950s. He was a rookie in 1950. His best season with the Cubs, according to fan graphs, 1953, 285, 341, hit 19 home runs, uh, slugged 476. Interesting note on Handsome Ransom. He later played and was with Dodgers when they moved from Brooklyn to L.A. So that's pretty cool that he got to play for both of those um, after the 1957 season. A couple of years with the Indians and then ended his career with the Cubs in 1959. So old-time Cubs fan here, John O'Shea with the submission there. The answer, handsome ransom, 
Randy Jackson, uh, the Cubs he stumped third us. baseman. Yep. Yeah, he got us yeah. pretty good. I don't even know if I knew Randy Jackson. I knew of him as an American Idol judge. I didn't know him as a Cubs third baseman. <laughs> we'll, we'll dip back into the 50s from time to time here. I'm sure uh, he'll have more submitted trivia for us. What do you yeah. got, Jeremy? I got I got a couple questions for you guys. Uh, these also come from uh, my father, who was interested in just getting some trivia out there. He was curious to know if you guys knew who the oldest Per, who the oldest player to get into a game for the 2007 and the 2008 Cubs were. Different guys, but who on each of those teams were. The oldest player to get into games. I'm going to guess Steve Traxel for the 2007 Cubs. I know he came back for a real brief stint. Uh, well, though nothing's brief with Steve Traxel, but I know he was <laughs> back on the 2007 Cubs for a minute. So that's my guess for 07. Either of you guys have other guesses or you go with Traxel? I, I don't even remember Traxel on that 07 team. Um, 08, Edmonds is the old guy that comes to mind on that team. That Maybe there's someone else, but... What when think I think Rana? of 07, and this is a guy who was probably younger than I thought he was. Like, he looked maybe 10 or 15 years older than he was. Uh, Jason Kendall, the backstop, was a name that I thought, but he was probably like 33, and he looked like he was 45, you know? Being a um, catcher but, ages you. Yeah, and being a catcher in Pittsburgh all those years, too, it beats you up a little bit, uh, playing on the AstroTurf and stuff, too. What do you got, Jeremy? Do you and Randall have any guesses for the 08 team? For the 08 team? Because uh, uh, Connor said Edmonds. You know, I, I don't have a guess for 2008, so I'll, I'll uh, jump on Edmonds there. My thought with 08 is maybe a relief pitcher who was near the end of his career and was on board for a little bit. I'm trying to think of bench guys on the 2008 team, you know, like especially throughout the outfield. I, I don't know. I um I don't have a guess there for 08. I, I'm blanking on that. I was actually a little excited with their earlier questions because these questions tied into them. Uh, and Randall is actually correct on the 2007 team. We were talking about Steve Traxel. And I was like, oh, I hope nobody spoils this because Steve Traxel did make an appearance for the 2007 Cubs and for the 2008 Cubs, the oldest man, beating out Jim Edmonds by a couple months, uh, was another former Cub who, pitcher who was mentioned earlier tonight, and that was John Lieber. Oh, yes, that's right. That's right. So and I thought until... it was pretty interesting. Both those guys came back on different yeah. teams and appeared in games. And I was like, he's fit. <laughs> and Lieber, of course, had was the last 20-game winner before Jake Arrieta. Uh, right. In 2015, when he had the 20 win season, love John Lieber, uh, one of those great Cubs from the late it, it was 90s. A great question there in Cincinnati. <laughs> yeah, great, uh, great question though from Stephen. Did he have another yeah, one? Steve Spe- uh, no, not really. Those are he was just he wanted to know if you guys knew the oldest guys on various playoff teams. That's good stuff. So I and thought we, these fit in, so I asked him. <laughs> totally. And we welcome, you know, fan submitted questions. So if you want to get something to us, Randall's probably the most visible. You can find him on Twitter, but just get us your questions. We'll put some good things in here. And we definitely enjoy uh, looking back on some previous teams. But as we get ready for this 2021 season to start here, uh, Connor, for the last couple of minutes with you, um, just wanted to pick your brain a little bit. It's been a really weird off season. I know you're a loyal listener of this podcast. You've heard our takes over the last couple of weeks, but it's been a very bumpy off season. It's started with a lot of uncertainty about COVID, um, a lot of dark clouds about reduced payroll, and then we kind of saw a a mass exodus. Theo Epstein was out of his role as the president of baseball operations. Kyle Schwarber non-tendered. Yu Darvish traded to San Diego. 
the last couple of weeks, Len the Casper. payroll. Yeah, Len Casper going to the White Sox radio. Last couple of weeks, there has been some investment in the major league payroll. Jock Peterson, certainly the most notable name. They've added a couple of veterans in the bullpen and some flyers for the starting rotation. But, you know, how do you feel here going into this 2021 season? You had a feeling that this wasn't where we would be three or four years ago. And yet here we are. What do you make of it? Yeah, I mean, I'm a little bummed out. I think I'm a little more negative on it than than you guys are. Um, you know, it feels like, like you were saying, the first half of this offseason, they're heading towards their second rebuild in the last 10 years. And another, you know, not quite tear it down as far as they did in 2012, but still a multi-year rebuild. And then about halfway through the offseason, they're like, you know, what if we just bring back the same team we had last year, but with much crappier starting pitching and see what happens. And and that's kind of what they did. Like they they brought the band back together. They replaced Schwarber with a very similar player in, in Jock, better defender, a little better contact hitter, but very similar player overall. You know, the bullpen, they're bringing back the same names, a big Ryan Tapera pickup today. Uh, a lot of the same names we saw last year, a lot of the same names, you know, offensively that, that we saw last year. But the rotation's just so much worse that, you know, you, you're, you're losing your ace. You know, Quintana is a guy who I, I think was a solid pitcher. It was better than Cubs fans give him credit for because that trade didn't work out, obviously. Um, you know, and you're bringing in, you know, the ghost of Jake Arietta, who you hope finds something being back in Cub pinstripes, but it's probably unlikely based on the pitcher he's been the last three years and hoping you can get more out of a guy like Trevor Williams by putting him into the Cub system and putting him in front of a good defense. You know, but again, you're, you're hoping to create something from a guy who hasn't been that person in, in the past. So to me, like I look at the last at last year's Cubs team they were good. They were okay. They were flawed. All the flaws from last year are still there. And now the pitching's worse. The division's probably worse. So I think they'll remain mildly competitive most of the season, but you know, you're going in looking at a mediocre team, you know, looking at an 81 team. Are you optimistic that Chris Bryant um, Javier Baez will certainly do something better than last year. I mean, they can't be worse unless they're injured and they just don't play, but mm-hmm. there's gotta be a little bit of optimism on that side. Okay. Yeah. Pitching's definitely worse, but the offense is probably going to perform a little bit better than last year. If you get something resembling a return to normalcy from Brian and Baez. Yeah. I mean, that, I think that's fair. I, I have major doubts about Javi as a hitter long-term Chris Bryan is, is a good hitter. He's always been a good hitter. You know, anytime he's been healthy, he's been a good hitter. He played was like 30 games last year. So in a normal season, it's when the second week of May. So I'm pretty optimistic that Chris Bryant, if healthy, is going to be a solidly above average, a 30% above average hitter. Javi, like if you look at Javi historically, 2019, he was phenomenal, right? If Yelich didn't go nuts, he's, he's got a good MVP case in 2019. 2020, or sorry, 2018, that was. 2019, he offensively had a great six weeks or so to start the year. But from mid-May 2019 through the 2020 season, he was arguably one of the worst hitters in baseball, if you look at that as one full season of of about 600 plate appearances. So I'm skeptical that Javi is an above-average hitter. Um, I think Rizzo's going to outperform what he did last year. I think Contreras is going to outperform what he did last year. 
you know, Bryant's absolutely, but there's guys on the other side. Like, I, I don't know if Hayward's going to outperform what he did last year. I don't know if Hap's going to outperform what he did last year. And I, while Javi will definitely be better than he was last year, I, I'm not convinced he's above average. So I think there's still, there's still potential holes there offensively. And then to me, the major issue is depth. You know, the bench is weak. Um, I, I'm excited about some of the progress they're making in the minors. I, I think over the next two years, they're going to build a top five farm system. Like I'm, I'm more convinced of that than I'm convinced that they're going to be competitive at the major league level. But right now, there's not a lot in AAA on the position player side to provide depth. So when someone goes down, you know, when Rizzo's back flares up for two weeks in May, or when Bryant has his injury and he's out for two or three weeks, you know, there's not a great option behind him. So offensively, I think they'll be better. I don't think they'll be great. How, how do you feel about uh, second base, which I know you conspicuously did not mention there? Do you think Nico should take it or keep him in Iowa, Bodie? Vargas is the other option, obviously. Yeah, I mean, the options there are, are thin. I think the best thing for, for Nico would be to go to AAA. Like, he, he's had so so little minor league time that that development would probably be best for him. But he's probably the best second baseman on the roster just because of what he gives you defensively. Um, you know, if you have Nico at second and Javi at short, Brian at third and Rizzo at first – that's excellent infield defense. And the one thing about all this, this collection of misfit pitchers they brought in, they all have that same skill of developing ground balls and, and, and getting ground balls. So the hope is if you put them in front of a great infield defense, like the Cubs have when Nico's, especially when Nico's playing at second, that you're going to get more out of those guys than you probably should. So if the goal is to be as competitive as you can in 2021, Nico's probably on the team. If the goal is what's best for his development, especially as a hitter, then you might have him in Iowa in, in April. You mentioned uh, a moment ago, you are more confident in the Cubs farm system going forward than you are necessarily in the major league team. Let's say they are, the Cubs are uh, competitive later in the season. Is there somebody in the, the high levels of the minors right now you could see them calling up and making an impact late in the season. Yeah. I mean, I think it would be on the pitching side, right? So a guy like, like Braylon, uh, Braylon Marquez, who we saw with one rough outing there at the end of 2020. Uh, I think, you know, from everything I, I follow, it sounds like they are committed to trying to make him a starting pitcher. I'm not sure he is a starting pitcher, but if they were in a situation where they were competitive down the stretch, he's an easy guy to look at as a potential high leverage bullpen arm, assuming that he can throw strikes. Um, so think about him. I think a guy like Corey Abbott could get 15 starts for the Cubs this year. Uh, he's a guy who's not talked about a ton, but it, you know, definitely has the ability to be a back end starter for a long time. Um, you know, it's, it's spring training. So you get the positive reports on everyone, right? Brendan Little's throwing 99 miles an hour. That guy's yeah, been like a non-prospect for three years and now he's throwing 99 miles an hour. So there might be some guys who pop up. Um, but I think the help is more on the pitching side, which is new because it hasn't been for the Cubs under this, you know, this, this management in the last decade. I'm curious about, uh, to answer Randall's question about two of the guys they, uh, brought up today which are Chase Strumpf and uh, Andy Weber, who they brought up to Major League Camp, two guys, middle infielders, that are kind of advanced college bats, kind of, that if either of them show anything 
and who knows what happens in second base could we see one of them coming up later in the year you know um i i, I always like Bodie as a hitter but who knows and so I, i'm just curious because i didn't expect those two guys to be like in major league camp so i'm just curious if they show anything yeah burl caraway is a guy i'm interested to see pitch competitively for the first time since getting drafted uh drafted just last season and they had him to the alternate training site in yeah. south bend polished college uh polished college pitcher throws real hard with good secondary stuff from the left side that's a guy i'd like to see uh get into competitive games as soon as possible and who I could see coming up later in the year and providing a, a good reinforcement out of the bullpen. Sleeper guy too, Ethan Roberts, going to yeah. start in the bullpen in Double A in Tennessee. He doesn't show up on any Cubs prospect list. You know, if, if you follow him on social media, he'll post these ridiculous spin rate numbers. He's got his velocity up in in you know the mid nineties consistently, and he throws strikes. So, you know, he's a guy, he's not a top prospect. Um, maybe he's a middle reliever long-term, but if he throws strikes, he's a guy who could move quickly and be on the Cubs this year. It's so hard to really know where anybody really stands because we miss, you have all the guys that didn't play in any games last year. And then you have a few guys who were in the alternate site, but we don't know how they looked really. So we don't, so like, it's, it's just, I just hard thinking like, where does any of these guys stand? We have to think about what they were doing like two years ago, but we don't know what they were doing last year. I've, so I, I imagine the Cubs have those same problems. You know, looking, looking a little bit bigger picture too, just within the organization, Connor, you mentioned some optimism that the farm is certainly retooling. Um, boy, that you Darvish trade hurts because you Darvish in this pitching rotation, Cubs could be contending. Certainly, they might even be the favorites in the division if they had him still in the rotation. You trade him, the, the positive is that there are some interesting names coming back. They're young, they're teenagers, but there could be a superstar in there. And there is a possibility that five years from now, we look back on that trade and say, what a great decision that was for the Cubs in the grand scheme of things. Um, when you look at the rest of the organization, though, I think that Cubs fans in the last year to two years has had sort of a running into a brick wall here with ownership. Right. Even Tom Ricketts last year at the Cubs convention getting booed when mentioning the marquee sports network, like even things like how the games are going to be broadcast are now contentious things here. Tom Ricketts comes in about a decade ago, tries to win early on. It was really, really bad those last couple of years, like the Matt Garza era of Cubs baseball, Carlos Pena and kind of that timeline. Then he does the best possible thing for developing the Cubs into perennial winners. He goes out and gets one of the smartest minds in baseball. Theo Epstein, and then commits to restructuring the Chicago Cubs organization. Like every single facet of the Cubs front office was advanced, expanded, invested in big picture through multiple losing seasons at the major league level. The guarantee through that or the promise through that was sustained success on the other end of it. We're, we're nearing the end of this window with the core world series guys, Rizzo, Bryant, Contreras, Javi, and we're, maybe on the cusp of another rebuild here. Like what should Cubs fans be thinking about ownership right now? Like who is the owner here? Is this a team that's going to have a top five payroll every year? Or is this a team that is so far in debt that the major league team and winning at the major league level is no longer a top priority? Yeah. I mean, to me, Cubs fans should be disappointed by, by ownership. So you mentioned two things that he that, that the Ricketts family deserves credit for. They hired Theo Epstein and they don't get involved with baseball decisions. They, they let Theo Epstein and now Jed Hoyer decide what to do with the budget that they give them. And lots of owners don't do that. So I'll give them credit for those two things. 
beyond that though, like to me, it's been frustrating. You, you know, they came in, they said the payrolls that we've been running under the Tribune are not sustainable when the Cubs had a top seven, top eight payroll at, at that time in baseball. And they hired Theo and they undertook this massive rebuild, um, which, you know, you can argue was certainly you can make a great argument that it was beneficial baseball wise to do it. But during that rebuild, when payrolls dropped to 15th, 20th, you know, 23rd in baseball compared to other teams, the argument was that when we're ready to win, the money will be there. When we need to get better, the money will be there. And then they, they won, you know, they won in 2015, maybe a little bit ahead of schedule 2016. They went over the luxury tax for the first time. They won the world series 2017 after winning the world series, they cut payroll by about $30 million. You know, we just saw the Dodgers win the world series. They went out and signed Trevor Bauer for $40 million this next year to go over the top tier of the luxury tax. The Cubs went the other way. You know, they, they had top five payrolls then 2018, 2019, 2020, but when the teams were still clearly flawed and when there was a flaw that needed to be addressed, there was no money to address it. Uh, and then COVID happened and, and it's, it's the convenient reason not to spend, you know, COVID didn't only happen to the Cubs. It happened to everybody. It happened to the whole league. Some teams are spending, some teams are not spending. The Cubs dropped payroll more, more dramatically than most teams. Um, so to me, and, and now they're possibly embarking on a second rebuild. Like a team like the Cubs should not be rebuilding two times in 10 years. The Cardinals don't rebuild in a much smaller market with much less revenue. Um, so, you know, it seems like they're trying to salvage this offseason by bringing back most team, uh, by not trading away a couple guys. It seemed like we're going to trade away over the offseason, but they're still heading into a season with a non-competitive team, a team that you can't project to be better than 500 for at least the fourth time in the last 10 years. So when, when you own the Chicago Cubs, when you own a team in this market with this revenue, 40% of the time to purposely be non-competitive is a failure to me. Yeah, it's disappointing. I agree with you uh, that they didn't spend, I mean, they outside of Darvish, there really was no major spending after winning the World Series that I and I it felt like when they signed Darvish like that was a signal that they were going to spend, and the twenty off season after twenty eighteen into twenty nineteen felt like that was the time to spend, and they didn't do it. And it's like kind of led the last three years. It's like every off season has basically been the same. It's like we're going in. We don't know if we're going to spend. We don't know how much money we have these guys could possibly be traded. We're going to kind of let them dangle out there for a little bit. If we don't get the offer we want, we're, we'll just content to go back and run the same team. And it's like three, it's like deja vu. And I feel like they set this up kind of at the beginning. Cause everybody knew 2021 was like, that's the year the cliffs coming. And they never did anything to like project it out farther outside of the Hayward contract is the only thing that's long-term and Darvish at the time. So it's like they didn't extend anybody. They haven't done that yet. We'll see if they ever do. Yeah. But, uh, you know, even Thiel was up after 2021 and he pushed it earlier. Everybody was up after 2021. Madden obviously was up a little bit earlier. So it's like I felt like they've always just been waiting for this. And, like, Theo even himself was like, you know what, after 2021, I don't need to worry about what the long-term thing is. And now we're here. And, like, this is the end. 
Yeah, if, if nobody is extended this spring, it's going to get real thin real fast. There's they haven't uh, developed any depth, anything up and coming behind the guys. They are currently poised to lose in free agency. Jeremy, going back to what you said, I was convinced right up until the point where Harper signed in Philadelphia yeah. that the Cubs were going to find some way to to bring him in some kind of higher average value but shorter term contract. Um, because it seemed like they were gearing up for that for that free agency season for a number of seasons prior. Theo with his comments about some plans that they had and keeping money for a certain player. It seemed like they were poised. And at some point in that offseason, and they signed, uh, they, they brought Cole Hamels back on a, a pretty high-value one-year contract early in that offseason. And it seems right after that, a decision was made internally that the baseball budget was going to be slashed by a large percentage and they've been trying to dig out from that ever since. Yeah. It, when you're saying when they picked up uh Hamill's option, but yes, like then when, when they, it came out, when it came out that like they were going to have to trade Drew Smiley to Texas to offset the money. I was like, well, what, why do we need to do that? Like we're the Cubs. Why, we should why have did, why money. Offset money. That exactly. Was, and, and that's when it was all like, okay, there's something going on here. And it's weird. Cause it shouldn't be that hard to get an extension done. I feel like with these guys, it shouldn't have been that much. I, I get the Boris thing with Bryant where Boris is extremely rare for Boris to accept an extension. I think Elvis Andrus is like maybe the only Boris guy that has accepted an extension, but like some of these other guys, it's like they could have done that and they haven't. And I, they should have been able to do that. Like other teams can sign their top guys. Why can't the Cubs? Pretty seamless transition there. Smooth, Randall and Jeremy, into this uh, quick lightning round with you, Connor. You've been generous with your time this evening. I'm going to give you six names here, and I want you to just tell me you can go yes, no, if you want to add a super quick sentence, but we're going to move quickly through it, whether or not these guys will be on a, in a Cubs uniform in 2022. So yes or no. First player, Chris Bryant. Will he be a Cub in 2022? No, I, I don't think he will be. Anthony Rizzo. Yes. Yeah, I think he's the easiest to extend. You know, he's he'll be 32 this year. You've got like the LeMayhew deal as as a template. I think you can extend Rizzo under 100 million, and they'll keep him as the face. Javier Baez. I think yes. I don't necessarily think he should be, but I think he okay. will be. Wilson Contreras. Reverse of Javi. I think no, but I think he should be. Interesting. Uh, two more names for you here. Kyle Hendricks. 2022. Yes. Okay. Ian Happ. Yes. And then a bonus one here, an impending free agent. Will he come home? Starlin Castro. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> okay. Uh, we'll see where he ends up here. Um, good stuff there. Connor, I got one last thing before we go here. Um, you're up in the Milwaukee area, somewhere between the Mars Cheese Castle and Cops Frozen Custard. I just want to get a sense for, is there any vibe around the Brewers' excitement? I know they're excited about their basketball team up there, and rightfully so, but what's the feeling in Milwaukee right now about the Brew Crew? Not, not much. You know, the Bucks are good. The Packers were good. There a lot of JJ Watt talk to the Packers up here. Um, I mean, I think, I think the Brewers are, are a good team uh, or an okay team. I, I think they're as good as the Cubs are. I'll say that. And they're about as good as the Cardinals are and maybe a little bit better than the Reds are. So I think they're going to be competitive. You know, they have what nobody else in the division has, and that's two high end starting pitchers. And they've got two high-end, high-leverage relief pitchers. 
offensively like that, that team looks like they need help. Um, but with the pitching they have, I, I think the Brewers are going to be competitive all year, but I don't think anyone up here really cares all that much. No, no, there's count down the days until uh, more Packer, Packer games. That's and right. Um, maybe some Wisconsin basketball fans here over the next couple of weeks going into March. But, Connor, thank you for your time this evening. Real fun talking baseball with you. We've done a lot of this over the years in the patios, backyards, at Wrigley Field. It was good to have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I've, I've enjoyed the show. You know, I, I love the Cubs. I'm, I'm obsessed. I follow everything. I've had a hard time finding a podcast that, that I love, you know, for whatever reason. But I've enjoyed listening to you guys. So, I'm honored to be the first guest on Behind yeah. the Line. Yeah, In order to find a podcast, all you had to do was have your brother start one. That's right. <laughs> Just have you guys do it and then jump on it myself. And now yeah, I like yes. it for sure. Exactly. And now we still need more Simpsons trivia from your daughter, Tegan. Uh, Jeremy loves those. I got I the do. Disney Plus account now. So uh, we're going to give Tegan some homework. We want some really good Simpsons trivia we can incorporate into the show here moving but forward. But she should do her real homework first. <laughs> I, I suppose so. We'll, we'll yeah. get working on that. Cool. Thanks, Thanks for your time, for me, Connor. Never did. Stay Thanks, warm. Enjoy the brats. Uh, we'll catch up with you later in the season. Thanks, guys. Cool. Yeah. Good stuff. Uh, and our first guest. So we, we had some fun with that. Our intentions with this show, more guests. Uh, like we said, Ray's on the clock here. Um, uh, Jeremy and I earlier this week were talking to the biggest Lansing Lugnuts fan in the United States. We're going to get Kern on here and uh, our buddy Ryan as well, big Cubs fan. Lots of fun things to share about. But if you want to come on, reach out to us, let us know. We're going to continue to build this up over the next couple of weeks and as we look towards opening day. Um, one other thing I wanted to share here before we talk about current transactions, really interesting documentary released this week by the Chicago Cubs productions team called Season at a Glance, a one-hour look back on the 2020 season. Uh, Randall, I know you caught it earlier in the week. I got it last night. Jeremy uh, uh, selectively picked the scenes with Eddie Vedder, basically, is where he was in there. Uh, but Randall, it was a pretty cool inside look at last year. Um, some storylines or nuance to the season that maybe we didn't pick up on when you play 60 games in 67 days. Uh, you know, this is what we were, I don't want to say promised. This is what was suggested when the Cubs started their own network, was this degree of access uh, to the team. And I, I thought this was a great watch, honestly. This was a good way to spend an hour and a half on a Monday night. Um, some great insight from current and former Cubs about what it was like last season, about what they had to do on the road to stay safe while still not going stir crazy. Um, to a man, all the players talked about how it really, really helped the camaraderie um, by not being able to go out on the road. You can't go to a restaurant. You can't go to a bar. Uh, I know last season, Ian Happ and John Lester talked about how uh, they were lucky enough to have hotels with outdoor decks. And that's basically where the team would gather when they were on the road. And I, I thought it was a really good look into uh, what they had to do last season in order to stay safe. And the Cubs, in fact, did not have a single positive test uh, all of last season. And that's that's an accomplishment because you can do 99% of everything right. And it's that 1% that'll get you and a lot of other people around you sick. Um, so it was, I thought it was a good look into uh, what it was like for them and what they had to do in order to, to get through last year's crazy season. As you said, uh, I didn't quite get the whole thing, but, uh, was this, was Bill Curtis involved in this? He was, he was the narrator of the documentary. Okay. Because I do remember at the start of last year, when they first did marquee, they did have some programming called Cubs 162, which was supposed to be a behind the scenes look. And they had like one or two episodes. I remember when David Ross was introduced was an episode and Bill Curtis mm -hmm. narrated that. So I feel like this 
is the kind of evolution, not evolution, but like the salvage of that. Cubs 60. Cubs. Cubs what? 60 instead of Cubs 162. Oh, yeah, Cubs 60. Okay, yeah. I was, there, was, there was no 162. No, I get it now. Because there was another show called Cubs 360, so I thought you were saying that. Um, but, yeah, so exactly, Cubs 60. So I think – I feel like they – because they couldn't follow guys around, you know, obviously during COVID. Uh, I feel like they they probably morphed that program into this. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it, I, I do always enjoy behind-the-scenes looks. So I'll have to take more. I did see the Lester, um, the Schwarber – video for Lester. I know Randall liked that because I saw him tweeting about it. And uh, and then it went straight into the Sox series, which I did watch. And then it went to the playoffs when I turned it off. <laughs> I'm yes. like, I don't need to relive that again. The 2020, got- the 2020 playoffs died on the way back to their home. Yeah, planet. exactly. I was curious from like a production standpoint, how they were going to spin the playoff games. It, it was sad though. It was like you know not to be too dramatic but it was like titanic where it's like ah this is about to get really ugly and then here it goes you know um one thing that stood out to me that i thought was really cool and i had missed this you guys mentioned before the recording here that you caught it on social media but that series that was canceled early in the year against st louis and there was a lot of doubt about if a couple series get canceled in a row is the season even going to be able to be finished but the cubs had a weekend no games to play and they had like a fun hitting tournament at wrigley field the documentary does a deep dive into it they had cardboard cutouts of Chicago celebrities former players guys like Michael Jordan and they basically did a hitting competition where the players were trying to hit those targets they were spread out across the infield and the outfield I'm watching this documentary last night going god I was so desperate for baseball even at that point when the season had started I would have watched that if they had live streamed it I wish I had been aware of it but just cool to see some of the levity because one of the points that Jed Hoyer made early on in the doc was the normal horsing around the things that players do to navigate the grind of a full season, you couldn't do because of social distancing. You had to ask permission to leave the team hotel. It felt like they were almost in a, uh, I don't want to be dramatic and say a jail, but like a summer camp, lockdown on summer camp, that to see some of those fun moments where the guys could blow off some steam, I thought that was pretty engaging. Yeah, it's cool. Um, And I, I feel like since they have, this kind of goes into like now, since they have so many cameras, you know, you want more uh, footage of the hitting tournament. But they, so they're, they're set up at Wrigley. They're set up in Sloan. I feel like now when we're in that weird time period of it's like early spring training where there's no games yet, but there's like the little bit of video that's leaking out through beat reporters and stuff that are there. And I don't know if there's some licensing or copyright issues or whatever that, you know, they need permission. But I feel like Turn those cameras on. Like, why can't yeah. we just watch it on marquee? You know, I, maybe they don't have to, you know, be airing it, you know, but, but like you, you get your guy Cole Wright or whatever, Bruce Levine up there, you put him in a desk and, you know, they could be talking over it or something. Like, patching, patching Jim Deshays on a microphone from his living room. He exactly. Hill. And so, like, like I that. feel like they could have had that on air. I, I'm sure it probably has to go through some MLB media thing or something. Sure. But, uh, you know, so like, I feel like, cause this is always like, I feel like it's the most exciting time, but the worst time it's like, I'm so I'm getting baseball, but I'm not quite getting, I'm getting little snippets. And that's yeah. how that kind of was with the hitting tournament. I remember them putting like a, not videos, but like, Oh, Michael Jordan got tagged. Oh, Hetty Vetter got tagged. And I was like, well, what's going on? There's like three tweets about this, but that's it. Yeah. Randall, did you have any moments during the documentary that you you booed? I had a I had one moment where I'm sitting here on my couch in Denver, 
someone pops up on the screen and I just start booing the television. Anything like that vibe with you? I'm a little bit more angry than you are uh, when it comes to things like this. Yeah, I, did, I didn't boo out loud, but, uh, you know, Crane Kenny pops up on the yeah. screen. And I'm like, okay, move, move along. Move along. Not the droids you're looking for. You didn't boo but, the Marlins? Uh, I mean, I don't boo the Marlins. I'm always in a state of booing the Marlins. Even right now, internally, I'm booing the Marlins. It's just kind of fourth and fifth on the list right now. Um, yeah, so when they come up, that just kind of skips up to number one. So I'm sure. always booing. I'm always booing the Marlins. There was a shot too. Speaking of the Marlins, that I caught, and and I don't know if it was a creative camera angle where the perspective it made it look like was when Brandon Kinsler closed out the game. He sort of looked into the Cubs dugout and smirked. And it was a point in the production where they slowed down the footage. Obviously, the Marlins were celebrating, but that one, I don't know, that one stuck a little bit. Like Kinsler, for him personally, I get it. That would be a moment for him that would be exciting he kind of had a rough stint here in Chicago he goes to Miami and he helps close out games to eliminate and end the Cubs season but seeing that smirk it just rubbed me the wrong way watching it but I did you know stand up on my couch here and, and boo the TV that's the exciting life I'm living here these days uh, when Crane Kenny came on I just didn't need to see him I wanted it to be more player and coach focused and fortunately that was most of the production I told you about the time when I was sitting like it was two years ago in 2018, 2019, when uh, it was that Darvish game where he was striking out everybody at the end of the year, but they still lost against the Reds. And I was like, we were like a couple rows behind home plate and Craig Kenny just came down, just was like just sitting in random seats. And I wanted to be like, dude, that's not your seat. Like, I bet that's taken to somebody. <laughs> I'm like, Craig Kennedy, you can just sit wherever he wants. <laughs> One major theme uh, in the doc was just how weird Wrigleyville was. Obviously the ballpark was empty, but, but we know what Wrigleyville on game day is like. Uh, the street vendors, the bars are packed. It's a real fun atmosphere. One of the great atmospheres in all of baseball. That got me thinking, Jeremy, um, as we look ahead to next year, fans getting back out to Wrigley Field, moving through this post-COVID world, like what are you most excited about, about game day? And I'm talking about, obviously, I know you're excited about the game, the competition. I'm talking more about like the festive atmosphere. What do you miss about game day that you're starting to get that itch for now when we look ahead to this season? Well, you know, generally, I, I mostly am at the ballpark unless I'm uh, for most of the time. I mean, sometimes I go out, you know, with friends and stuff or hanging out. But I'm not really... I'm mostly see to me I'm mostly missing the ball games I'm mostly missing getting there and 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 just the game itself uh I I, I plan on going to games this summer I don't I don't know if how eager I am to going out to bars drinking with people but if things are open up we'll see what happens um but yeah I mean it's always fun to be out there in the summer especially a nice summer day not once you know freezing cold although you never know the fun can happen at any time but, uh, you know, it's nice to walk up and down Wrigleyville and see all the action. It's a little different nowadays, you know, because of what Tommy Boy put in. Tom Ricketts uh, kind of Schaumburgized Wrigleyville a little bit. But uh, so it doesn't quite have the same. I'm, I'm not going to say charm because I don't feel like it ever really had charm. Oh, but, you're, uh, I totally disagree with you on okay. that. It had it had grimy charm yeah it was it was divey it was like a real dive bar not like a fake dive bar or like a like a you know a place that's like a real dive and like i you know the dive aspect was fun and now everything's built up i know you're mourning the loss of taco bell that that's a spot that you frequented and i I almost went there to protest Uh, a couple years ago (laughs) i saw they had on facebook there was a little Facebook. I don't know if maybe it was Russian propaganda or something, but there was a Facebook uh, 
protest going on at that Taco Bell. And I was like, yeah, protest them for tearing this thing down. One last opportunity to live Moss in Wrigleyville, Jeremy. I miss the McDonald's, you know, now it's the Triangle Building. I miss Salt and Pepper. Yeah. That's gone. I miss, it's like you walk down uh, Clark Street and on the whole, like across the street from Cubby Bear and Vines, I guess. And like all that stuff is built up. It's like huge. And even down Addison, it's like all built up. There's like residential buildings i missed you know what i miss i missed the uh 7-eleven yeah i remember going out after a pearl jam concert i think and it was like right when they tore it down and i was like i'm i need to get a drink i'm like it's middle of summer it's 1 a.m i have to get something to drink like i need to get and i'm like i'll just go to the 7-eleven to get a coke or something and it was gone i was so like what the hell yeah about it randall what do you miss about the game day experience. What are you most looking forward to here when we get back to uh, whatever normal is? Uh, you know, what I miss most, Wrigleyville has a lot of good energy on game day. Even, you know, for an afternoon game, you get there early in the morning, people milling about. For a night game, you get there midday. People are, are starting their runs. Uh, what I miss most, just kind of clearing a day in the summer, maybe a, a seven o'clock start, you get to Wrigleyville at two or three o'clock, you, you find a nice patio somewhere. You drink for a little bit, and then you head into the ballpark nice and early. You can see batting practice, get your uh, your discount food on the early bird special. I, I miss just kind of taking a day for that on a nice yeah. a nice summer day. Um, yeah, and, and real quick, the you know the developments in Wrigleyville. I'm okay with most of it. the The one thing I, I just have no use for is the uh, the Clark and Addison development, in part because it got rid of the salt and pepper. Yeah, and. For, for that for that establishment to be gone in the name of some luxury apartments uh, boy that that that's the one thing I don't abide by that at really all. gets Randall there that that's that's where you lose me entirely like I'm okay with the hotel for the most part I think the restaurants on the ground floor are pretty decent I think the the Gallagher way buildings are for the most part unintrusive and useful enough um, but when you get rid of the salt and pepper that's where you lose me you lose R- the salt and pepper and you lose Randall Randall Blue loved Randall. the uh, the the uh, tall glasses of milk at the Salt and Pepper, and I remember lots of pregames. Uh, Jeremy, you and I were probably splitting pitchers of beer or Jack and Cokes, and Randall had that tall glass of milk as we had our breakfast and got ready for a game day. I miss Salt and Pepper certainly. Early opening days spent there. Lots of early cold opening days, and we in and in the last couple of years, I think at least for the three of us. Um, the patio at Vines has been a hot spot. Let's meet up there pregame, get a couple of drinks in us. Uh, let's get ready to go head into the ballpark. And, um, you know, of course, we're the type of fans we want to be in there. Um, you know, starting lineups are being announced. We we do not leave early. We are there for every pitch and we have a hell of a time when we get out to the ballpark. We do not leave. Yeah, I'm going to say we we don't we, uh, we stay pretty late, as late as we can. Yeah. Uh, and we have had. Till the crazy games. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. The ushers come and and clear you out. And that's another thing I'm a big fan of. When the game ends, there's like the mass exodus. Everybody's filing out. I'm the kind of guy that's like, we're just going to post up. Let's just post up. Let everybody leave. I'm going to look at the Ivy, the Cubs win, the W flags up there. I don't want to be packed in with people in the lower concourse at Wrigley Field or coming down those ramps from the upper deck. And frankly, I don't want to leave the ballpark, especially when they win. For the, at the Edison station or of on course. the Sheridan platform. No, I will say though about the game day experience that I'm really looking forward to. It kind of hit me watching the documentary yesterday is just the, you know, the excitement when you're getting on the train, you're heading down on the red line towards Wrigley Field. You can see the lake off to your left. You're passing through some really iconic 
north side neighborhoods too in Chicago as well, you know, from uh, uptown Edgewater, just as you, you know, work your way down through the city. And then you come into Wrigleyville and you see the light stands and you see the ballpark and it's like, all right, we get to do this again. And that, that's the thing that I love. And I love the energy on game day, all the vendors, the people in the street, the cars driving by it's chaos, but there's an energy to it. And for a couple of hours, yeah, the ballpark's changed since we were kids going there, but they've still been playing baseball there since, you know, over a hundred years since 1914. And um, hopefully they'll be there for another hundred years. So it just got me excited. I'm, I'm looking forward to this upcoming year and just getting back to taking the train, going to the ballpark, checking the flags, the wind blowing out. Is there a chance we're going to see some home runs today or could it be a one to nothing game and all the other fun stuff that goes into that. It, it never gets old. I'll put it that way. And a, a yeah. pro tip for arriving at the ballpark, uh, get off the, get off the train at Sheridan and walk those extra few blocks. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, you got some restaurants right there under the, the Sheridan station. You start walking the ballpark. People got W flags in the windows and then you get close enough and the bleachers just kind of rise up. And you see Harry waiting there for you to say hello. You see the flags. You see the, the, the back of the, the scoreboard. Uh, nothing like it. Nothing like it. And hopefully, hopefully we can uh, make our way back there soon. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you, too, there are some terrible bars in Wrigleyville. Um, some good times as well. I know Sluggers has a bit of a mixed reputation, but mm-hmm. I've had some good times up there. Jeremy, you and I put down a couple J and C's. We go up there, take a little bit of batting practice, um, try to do our own version of Chris Bryant, Javier Baez, and all that good stuff. Oh, yeah. um, but we're getting back at it, and we're looking forward to getting out to the season. Hopefully the three of us can spend an afternoon or an evening at Wrigley Field this summer. Uh, here in Denver, the big announcement today is the Rockies will have 25% capacity starting with opening day. Uh, Coors Field, a big ballpark. That's, that's a hell of a prediction by the Rockies that they think they're going to oh, yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, look, get this, too. This is the most recent protest, and then we'll get into some transactions and bring this home. I know we're running long here. Um, so the fan protest, the most recent fan protest here in Denver, uh, has been boycotting Rockies games from going to the ballpark, watching it on TV on the 28th of every month throughout the course of the season. So that's what they're trying to do to pay respects to Nolan Arenado. And I want to be clear, I'm really not trying to poke fun at Rockies fans. I feel for them. I think what their owner did was totally shitty. What they did with Nolan Arenado, you talk about a franchise player. We've been over this, but I really feel for Rockies fans. But I thought, you're going to protest on the 28th? Like, come on, little dramatic. Go to the ballpark, don't go to the ballpark. Picking out the 28th, I don't know. It didn't win me over. Let me put it that way. But I am excited to be out at Coors Field this summer. 12,500 fans starting on opening day. And I will be one of them uh, out there hopefully a couple of times this summer. Some transactions this week for the Chicago Cubs. The bullpen has been addressed. Hard-throwing right-hander Ryan Tapera back on a major league deal for 800000 Randall, I think the interesting thing here is a hard thrower in the Cubs pitching staff. That'll be refreshing to see somebody who actually can put a little bit of zip on the balls. People a lot smarter than me have made the point today. You've got a rotation that is uh, contact heavy right now. And there's going to be a lot of times where you get uh, a quality start from a pitch to contact guy. And then you bring in a very different look with a couple of hard throwers. And uh, Ryan Tapera last season, and this surprised me, Brian Smith, the fine Cubs prospects writer, you can find him on Twitter at Cub Prospects, pointed out uh, last November, Ryan Tapera's cutter was actually first in the shortened 2020 season as far as uh, whiff percentage. And that is ahead of the Blake Snell curveball, the Shane Bieber slider, and the Devin Williams screwball. That is Ryan Tapera's cutter as the uh, highest ranked 
pitch by whiff percentage. And he was very effective in the uh, first part of last season with that uh, cutter slider combo. So for $800,000 as a guy who gets a lot of swing and misses, there's uh, no harm in this and hope potentially it turns out to be very effective. Yeah. I, I, I liked Tapera last year. Uh, MV, you should know an MVP candidate, Ryan Tapera, um, gotten getting those votes, but uh, he, I liked him last year. Uh, he, I, he, the slider, I thought he should throw a little more because that also had a high whiff percentage. Um, he did fall off towards the end of the season. I felt like Jason Adam kind of came up and took his thunder a little bit. He had a much better start to the season. But uh, as you mentioned, Randall, um, it is interesting because this rotation, it's like all contact guys, ground balls, two seamers. But the bullpen has guys that can strike people out. The bullpen has stuff in it, um, up and down it. So it's going to be interesting how they how they do that because – there's, as you said, it's going different looks. Like they're going to pull a guy who's all contact getting ground balls. And you could bring in, as I mentioned, Adam to para, um, you know, obviously at the back end, Kimbrel is throwing gas. So it's, it's interesting that they kind of have two different styles, rotation and bullpen. I don't know if they planned it that way necessarily, but that's how it is. Speaking of pitching and going back to Randall, some popping and cracking at spring training, Kyle Ryan, the left-hander out of the bullpen, he uh, is on the COVID-19 list here to start the year. So some uncertainty whether or not he'll crack the team at the start of uh, the opening day. Also some real tough news here, Rowan Wick, uh, another hard-throwing right-hander who we expected to be one of the top setup men for the Cubs this year, struggling with an oblique injury. The expectation is he will miss opening day. So I think that adds a little bit more urgency for Ryan Tapera. You figure Workman, Andrew Chafin, and as you mentioned, Jeremy, a uh, Kimbrell are going to have big innings at the end of ball games for the Cubs. But Ryan Tapera is back. Um, this is one I, I think that was certainly worth a shot, particularly at 800 grand. Um, some surprises, though, maybe in the outfield. Philip Irvin, Jeremy, was a name that we were talking about. We thought would be one of the uh, outfielders for the Cubs this year off the bench. He's gone, claimed off waivers by Atlanta. Welcome back, Cameron Maben. Is this an upgrade over Philip Irvin in one of the reserve outfielder roles for the Cubs? Well, it's interesting. Um, Irvin, we were talking about mostly because he's the only guy that the Cubs had that had shown any sort of success in the outfield of hitting left-handed pitching. And going through Mabin, and he's had some success about left-handed pitching. He is a right-handed batter. But in his career overall, he's actually been worse against left-handed pitching. I didn't realize that, that he has against right-handed pitching. Those are his splits. Now, his sample size usually for splits are smaller but I don't know. I, Maven's a better defender. That's a fact. He's had more success in the majors than Philip Irvin. He's been probably he, – he's basically been an average guy. He's been like an average hitter, an average – you know, in, in the corner outfield spots, he's been above average defender and not as much in the center. But he can play center field. Irvin couldn't do that. Um, so I, I probably like Maven a little bit more than Irvin. Uh, Irvin did have the one thing that the Cubs lack – so that's tough. That's a tough loss, I feel like, there. And the Cubs kind of got stuck where they have, like, too many guys on the 40-man, so they had to DFA someone and to bring in Marisnik. It ended up being May, uh, excuse me, Irvin. So, and perhaps that's why they brought in Maven, because they knew they were going to have to DFA Irvin, and they gave Maven a minor league deal, so they're not stuck with him on the 40-man. As of now, they'll have to make that decision when it comes closer to opening day. But I, I never was, like, super high on Irvin, so it's not like I don't feel a total loss. It's just that he did something that nobody else does. On the Cubs. 
So Cameron may have been back in the outfield here, and uh, it's a minor league deal, but the expectation is he will break camp with the Cubs. Uh, another interesting note, uh, Brendan Davis, the Cubs' top prospect, gets an inv invitation to big league camp. I want to be very clear here, there is really no plan at all for him to break camp with this team. He's going back to the minor leagues, but at least for us, we'll get a chance to see him a little bit in some of these spring training games and he'll get to see some big league pitching. I think that's really important for his development, especially given last year's neutered minor league schedule. So he's going to get to see some big league pitching and a chance for some development there for him. Yeah. And as I mentioned also uh, earlier, uh, Chase Trump and Andy Weber also today yeah. were brought up. So it's, it's nice to see some of the younger guys, that you'll see in games and in especially this weekend, I assume earlier in the season, the starters aren't going to play as much. So you want to get more guys in. Um, so yeah. And Brent Davis, we all have high hopes for, he hasn't played that much as we mentioned last week, even like 50 games really in his minor league career. Yeah. So it'd be nice to get him some exposure and it's fun to watch. And it's not just seeing major league pitching. That's also time spent working with the major league coaching staff uh, on the hitting side, working with the major league position coaches and spending time uh, around the, the major league teammates like that, that factors in a lot for a kid that young to spend time around veterans like Rizzo, Bryant, Baez, and just kind of sit back and watch how they do things. I had a moment yesterday uh, where I went, huh, how about that? I had no idea that this guy signed with the team. Uh, apparently I missed this. Jason Kipnis is an Atlanta Brave, or at least he's in camp with the Braves. That got me thinking, Jeremy, you've got a great memory with Jason Kipnis up on the North Shore here. Uh, could you maybe tell our audience what happened? You, you maybe had a controversial call and the future Major League All-Star was ready to come at you. That is, that is completely true. So if anybody's listening that was in uh, District 30, uh, Ray Blunts, I believe, was in District 30. We had a school district 30. We had a uh, uh, two elementary schools that went to the same middle school, and we played a rival elementary school game. Uh, Ronan, obviously, you were in District 30, uh, and in Northbrook. And uh, on one side, we had Kipnis. On the other side, I was. And there was a, a close call at third base, and I made a call that was out, which I will admit, terrible call. It's a terrible so call. You were the umpire. Uh, yeah. I was, and I made, it was a terrible call. And I don't know how the league would look upon this though, but uh, it was a bad call. And I think it was me and Chris Denzel. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, and Jason Kipnis came uh, from, not on the field, from the other dugout, I guess, came sprinting across the field. I believe he yelling, whatever, he was safe or something like that. Perfect form tackle, by the way, Kipnis. Uh, he, a fo former football player, perfect high form school football player. player. Yeah. Yes, just laid me out. Absolutely, label laid me out. Uh, and I don't know if if that's something that Rob Manfred would approve of of a, a just a straight form tackle of a third base umpire, but uh, just laid me out. And I remember his teammate at the time, Alex Crow, came over and picked Kipnis up, a big guy, Alex Crow was, and chucked him clear across the field i've never seen somebody thrown so far and he just chucked him picked him up off of me and just chucked kipnis so that's my jason kipnis story i was tackled in sixth grade by a major league all-star <laughs> and i feel like that makes me a major league all-star just by transformative property maybe a good thing fans weren't at wrigley last year he might have recognized you and we would have had problems again oh yeah i got 
I, I got a, a small, very, very quick Jason Kipnis story as well. Um, we were both students at Maple over in uh, the Glenview Northbrook, you know, line up there in Northbrook. And I remember a, exactly District 30 representing uh, the North Shore here. But I remember we were in a, it would have been seventh or eighth grade gym class and we were playing flag football he was the quarterback I was the wide out and if you've ever met me I am one of the least most athletic people that you'll ever meet I'm not fast I'm short I am not going to do a whole lot on the field but I put a move as wide receiver on the cornerback and I got wide open Kipnis was the quarterback because he was you know head and shoulders more athletic than anybody else on the field he spots me and we have a moment and I actually had a moment of oh crap because I'm wide open this is an athletic guy and he knows it he launched a perfect, perfect spiral pass at me. The ball's up in the air. I'm tracking towards the end zone. I completely butcher it. It hits off like my shoulder or my chest. I drop it. He's pissed. Jason Kibnis, a little bit of a fuse there in oh, those middle school eras. Yeah, I'm sure and he still has a fuse now. And I'm sure that has driven him to where he's at, yeah. you know, as a, uh, a former major league all-star, but he let me have it. And I remember pointing up at the sky, Very trying to make a kid. point that, you know, I couldn't see the ball. It was in the sun. It was a perfectly overcast day. He had a couple choice words for me. Never looked at me again. Didn't even consider, not even thinking about throwing a pass my way. I may have well have just left the field. He wasn't even going to consider it. I blew my chance there with the future Cleveland Indian star. My, I'm pretty sure my story was evidence of Jason Kipnis having a few. Yeah. Well, we I both had our moments. I appear to be the only one on this podcast who have never pissed off Jason Kipnis. So hopefully I can yet I can hold that distinction for, for some time still. Your time is coming. And yeah. uh, speaking of Don't your time, there. Randall, let's give you the spotlight here. You're always up to date on the latest spring training roster number updates. Any changes from last week we're sharing with us? Yes, sir. At the very tail end of last week's podcast, I was very generously given the printed roster for this year's Cubs spring training camp by uh, John Antonoff, the fine photographer out in Arizona. He's currently shooting photos from Cubs camp in Mesa. Give him a follow. You will not regret it at, at baseball in focus, all one string. Uh, and so without any further ado, here are some of the numbers for the new Cubs here in 2021. Outfielder Jake Marisnik takes number six. Mm. Worn previously by Billy Hamilton. That was a weird time uh, last year. Ian Miller wore it, though never on the field. Nick Castellanos wore it in his brief but very productive time as a Cub. Uh, 2016 hero Carl Edwards Jr. wore number six. It was the only number they could fit on a jersey that skinny. Uh, <laughs> and then past Cubs Ryan Sweeney and, of course, all-star Brian LaHare was a number six in his time as a Cub. Backup catcher Austin Romine takes number 15, worn last year by outfielder Cameron Mabin, again in his brief time as a Cub. Brandon Morrow wore it uh, as the closer in 2018, and I like Brandon Morrow. I thought it was a good number for a relief pitcher. And uh, this is a name that stood out to me as I was looking at the list of past Cubs to wear number 15, Brian Mattis. He who made the one disastrous start for the Cubs in the summer of 2016, a, a crazy game against the Mariners that saw Travis Wood play the outfield and saw John Lester win it on a sacrifice bunt. Yeah. Brian Mattis started that game for the Cubs wearing number 15. Ronan, this is right in your wheelhouse. I'm going to lob this up to you, and you are going to swing and hit it a mile. Rule 5 pick Gray Fenter, the right-handed pitcher, he is in number 21, and I know you are That's not appalling. happy about this at all. That's appalling. 
That's appalling. I, I think we've mentioned this before. 21 needs the 34 treatment. I'm not saying retire 21. I want the Cubs to be very, very select in numbers they retire. But for God's sake, you've got to earn 21. You don't give it to Gary Fenter. I, I, don't, I don't even know who he is. That's, it's just it's appalling Great. to me the disrespect for Sammy Sosa that this organization continues to do. I'll read off half this list here. I think Ronan has a point. Uh, Steven Souza Jr., Anthony Iaposi, the hitting coach, Tony Kemp, uh, Tyler Chatwood, Mark Zagunas, uh, Tommy Hunter, Junior Lake, Scott Hairston, Joe Mather, Luis Valbuena, Tyler Colvin, Rest in peace. Milton Bradley, and Jason Marquis, the Rest number 21 Bradley. since Sammy Sosa departed the Cubs. That is an ugly, ugly list. Ronan, I couldn't agree with you more here. 21 needs to be treated with a little bit of reverence if you're not going to retire it. And you don't need to retire it. But I agree. Give it the number 34 treatment. Assign it a little yeah. more selectively than every individual to come off the scrap heap. My goodness. Uh, Zach Davies, your number two starter, takes number 27, his number with Milwaukee in his time there. Jason Kipnis wore it last year. Addison Russell prior to him. Austin Jackson, uh, the outfielder, late season ad as your, your sixth outfielder. Taylor Teagarden, uh, Phil Coke, Casey Coleman, and Sam Fold, briefly a fan favorite, some number wow. 27s. General manager of the Phillies, Sam Fold. That's right. Uh, now manager of the Phillies, Sam Fold. Uh, new third base coach, Willie Harris, another uh, tip of the cap to our friend Ray Blunts, is in number 33. So you'll see him hopefully making good decisions, waving guys home uh, this season. Some past number 33s, Jim Aducci, Tony Barnett, Eddie Butler, Clayton Richard, who came up big for those 2015 and 2016 teams, was a number 33. Uh, as was former manager Dale Swain, the less said, the better. And briefly in his uh, time as a Cub, uh, DJ LeMahieu, 33, and uh, Glendon Rush, one of those great names from the mid-2000s, was also a number 33. Uh, and finally, Jonathan Holder, who was for a time the only major league contract that had been awarded in the NL Central this offseason. He takes number 52, which Ryan Tapera wore last season. So we'll see if there's any wheeling and dealing going on there. Justin Grimm, a great reliever for the 2016 Cubs. He was also a number 52. Uh, Philip Irvin was rostered in number 18. He would have been the first wearer since Ben Zobrist. Uh, that obviously will not occur now, at least not with Phil Irvin. And then real quick, some of the non-roster guys with major league experience who you'll probably see get decent looks in camp as the Cubs decide uh, whether to roster them, hope to keep them at Iowa in case of injury. Ian Miller, the speedy outfielder, is wearing number one, invoking memories of Tony Campana. And anytime you can invoke a Augie Ojeda, mm -hmm. anytime you can invoke a memory of Tony Campana, boy, why wouldn't you? Uh, Matt Duffy, the veteran infielder, is in number five, which was Almora's number. They gave that away with the quickness. Veteran catcher Jose Lobaton is in number seven, and he'll hopefully go to Iowa, probably be your third or fourth catcher on the depth chart if somebody gets hurt. And finally, uh, veteran starting pitcher Shelby Miller, who was once traded for Javier Baez and then not traded for Javier Baez, he is in number 29. Uh, first, who, who comes to mind in 29? Jeff Samarja, for yeah. sure. Traded totally. away. And that is your 2021 Cubs number update. So Did again, you say you uh, Maven got 15 back? Is that what you said? I missed that. Uh, so Austin Romine is wearing number 15. Oh, because Mabin, Mabin, Mabin was 15 last year. Mabin was 15 last year. So Mabin, that's another one where there's going to be a fight. Uh, was not on this roster, which was uh, printed out a couple days before Mabin was brought back. Yeah. Um, so he, I'm sure, will take some other number. He's been a number four many times in his career, and I believe that is open right now, so I could see him taking that. 
Um, but yes, that is your 2021 Chicago Cubs number update. Not a whole lot of big names, especially after we covered uh, Peterson, Williams, and Workman on last week's show. But here's some of the new faces and new numbers you'll see around Mesa and Wrigley just the same. Good stuff, Randall. And Jeremy, if there is a fight between Austin Romine and Cameron Mabin, I hope Marquis shows it to us. Give us a live stream. I want to see it play out. Get those cameras and on. A non-Cub number that I thought was a fun note, too, uh, with the New York Mets, Taiwan Walker, a name that we thought oh, that might be an interesting fix or interesting arm in the mix from the Cubs rotation. He takes 99 with the Mets. That's a number that I've got a fondness for. But I saw, Randall, that it was a bit of a tip of the cap to Mr. Met who wears double zero. And I thought you put both of those together. Here's a New York Met that I kind of am pulling for now, him and Stroh. I hope they have a nice year together. That's right. Uh, Taiwan Walker wore the, the double zero in his time with the Blue Jays last season. He did uh, joke to the New York media that he didn't want to take Mr. Met's number. And a former number 99 with the Mets, you might like this, Ronan, Turk Wendell. Oh, yeah. Uh, a very quirky mm. individual. He actually sent Walker a care package uh, with a, a toothbrush and I believe a, a shark tooth necklace as Turk Wendell was known to wear on the mound. So uh, a little bit of fun with Jersey numbers, passing of the torch from one ninety nine to another. Surprise well, I hope he sent come up. Yeah. I, I hope he sent uh, some licorice and Turk Wendell, another uh, former cub great from our youth. Uh, speaking of the Mets though, we've been talking about them here. Here's a former cub who absolutely hated the New York Mets his entire career and until the day he died. And we're talking about one of the all-time Cubs greats, Ron Santo, who would have turned 81 this week. Uh, think about Ronnie a lot. Uh, something interesting that came to me earlier today is it's so cool with someone like Ron Santo, the impact that he had on Cubs fans over the decades. If you were watching Cubs baseball in the 1960s, he may have been your favorite player and then your favorite player of all time. Our generation he was the voice of the summer, him and Pat calling Cubs games on the radio. That's the Ron Santo we grew up with. And when I think about Ronnie and the things that I miss him and Pat, whether or not those teams were good or not, those broadcasts were a ton of fun to listen to. And that's like the sound of my childhood when I go back and think about Ron Santo. You know, Ron Santo, the voice, again, of my formative years as a fan, where I was filling in a lot of the gaps in my knowledge. And maybe that explains some of the remaining gaps in my knowledge. Um, your brother mentioned Brant Brown earlier. You can't not hear yeah. Santo losing his mind in the background at the Brant Brown dropped ball. Uh, all the, the, the radio calls that I've listened to and cataloged over the years, countless Ron Santo shouting in the background, yes, no, any other emotion. There's one, one, one moment that uh, I'll always remember for Ron Santo. I think it was a spring training game. So, you know, things were a little looser. And I believe the Cubs were playing the Mariners in the spring. And Scott Spezio, the veteran infielder, had just entered the game. Pat Hughes, as he always is, was on top of things. He says, uh, and Scott Spezio has just entered the game at third base. And Ron Santo never missed the trick. Scott Spezio, is he still in baseball, Patrick? Well, he's over there at third base, Ron. <laughs> uh, so, you know, Ron Santo missed him every day. It's, it's, it's terrible that he did not get to uh, enjoy his own Hall of Fame enshrinement. Bob Brimley yeah. pointed it out years ago. Did his numbers change after passing away? Was he somehow more worthy? Uh, unfortunate decision. And he, of course, would have been over the moon at the, the 2015 and the 2016 Cubs. And uh, I like to think that he was just the same. Literally. Yeah, over the moon. And, uh, you know, Ron Santo, obviously not maybe the best broadcaster, as Randall's pointing out, but a beloved broadcaster. 
uh, more almost even the mascot of the Cubs, if you will. Um, a, a great player, probably even an underrated player. Yes. Um, because and most people do probably think of him now as the broadcaster, uh, unless you're of a certain age. Um, but he was a fantastic baseball player. If you look at his stats, he had some, he had like a 10 war season. There are some years he was like, I think over a period of time, if I looked it up once, he was like over a four or five year period, he was like third in the league in war behind like Willie Mays and Hank Aaron. Like that's how good of a baseball player Ron Santo was. He was an amazing baseball player and yeah. he obviously, and he did so with some health issues with the diabetes. He did a lot for JDRF obviously in his career, I remember there's a story. He might have he was not feeling well. He might have been seeing double, maybe even triple, and he he didn't know he didn't know how to tell anybody because he didn't want people to know that he was sick. So he went up there and he said he saw three. I think like he saw three pitchers. He saw three baseballs, and so he just swung at the one in the middle. Yeah, and he hit a home run, and just things like that. And Ron Santo, an amazing man, an amazing Cub, amazing baseball player, and he did a lot of good work for. JDRF and diabetes. So always a tribute to Ron Santo. I'm glad you mentioned that, Jeremy. It's a big part of his legacy beyond the field. Uh, did a ton for raising money for a very important cause. And you know, you'd say, okay, maybe he wasn't the best broadcaster of all time. I think that's part of the reason why it worked because you had Pat Hughes, who was so precise, so good at his job. You knew what was happening. Then you had Ron Santo, who was like the fan next to you at the bar, or that guy who he lived and died with the Cubs. He loved that team uh, more than anybody that I can think of. Him and Ernie Banks are those two guys that I think of as iconic Cubs and people who really cared about the team and the players. And I just wish he was around in 2016. He would have loved that team. I mean, you think of some of the guys over the last couple of years. If Ron Santo could have seen Javier Baez day in and day out, that would have been a lot of fun for him to get that. Jake Arrieta pitching down the stretch in 2015 in 2016 um, all the characters he would have loved Anthony Rizzo and it's a shame that we didn't get that and um, it's something that he's going to be a cup forever the statues outside Wrigley Field he is part of the lore and we think about him a lot and we miss him and a happy birthday he would have turned 81 years old this week so we'll pour one out for Ronnie here and uh, it was certainly someone that we'll be thinking about moving forward as we get into the season but that's all we got on this edition of Behind the Yellow Line. I say that like we haven't been here for long. I think we're coming up on two hours at this point. But a very fun show. We tried something different today with a guest. Thanks, Connor, for coming on board. We'll continue to mix in new guests. Randall, good stuff with the roster updates. And Jeremy, you went over on the Pearl Jam references. You had at least four or five in here today. Uh, I knew you'd do it. And you got there. But that's all we got for this edition of Behind the Yellow Line. We'll be back next week with more on updated coverage regarding spring training as games will be kicking off here by the time we're talking next. We'll see you next week.